Acts chapter 4, verse 32. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales, and they, lay, they would lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. And Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is an uncomfortable passage for many in our day, especially in our country. The economics of the early congregation, the early church, have aspects and characteristics that make us nervous. Because when we look at the book of Acts, as I've said before, we, we see the behavior of the early Christians and we wonder which of these things we are to, to imitate in our day? Which of these things are to be timeless truths that are to be practiced in the church all through this era? In other words, are we supposed to sell everything we have and bring the proceeds and lay them before the elders' feet that it might be distributed to each who has need? Now, it's not just in our day and not just in modern Western Christianity that this passage is uncomfortable. It has been throughout history because it deals with wealth within the church. And that's always a tricky subject because wealth has always brought with it power and power influence and influence protection. And even in the days when the church was was still much maligned. The rich among the church provided an, an umbrella of protection that was very much cherished. And even after the church was then legalized by the Emperor Constantine and, and later was established by Theodosius, the church still sat very uncomfortably with wealth. Because without wealth, there is not much that can be done in this world. And without wealth, there is not much protection. Marcus Crassus, one of the first triumvirate in Rome, said that no one is truly rich unless he can pay for his own army. Protection against oppression, protection against one's enemies outside, and even, sadly, within professing Christianity, wealth has afforded that throughout the history of the church. But we can't help but remember our Lord's words that it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a wealthy man to enter into the kingdom. And so wealth has, has never been a comfortable companion to Christianity. And we are live in the most prosperous nation in the history of mankind. Our poverty level ranks among one of the higher GDPs of the nations of the world. And as a church... And Christians in this country, we may not individually feel wealthy, but the rest of the world, especially the undeveloped world, sees us as very, very wealthy. 
And so preaching on wealth is an uncomfortable situation. There are, in our modern American evangelical Christianity, two pillars at the entrance of the temple. One is called republicanism, and the other capitalism. I had a personal experience in in doing some of my own studies on biblical economics. When I submitted my first chapter for review for my faculty advisor, the response I got back to him from him was so cautious, so careful, and I could read between the lines, he was seriously concerned that perhaps I was a communist. I'm not. But it was an example of how difficult we have it in our day and age to read a passage like this, which, which just seems to scream socialism, communism, all things being held in common, no one having ownership of what they possessed, that we go, wait, wait a minute, I don't, I don't think I can go there. Because we all know that socialism and communism are wicked. We know that they are failed. There must be another reason. There must be another interpretation. And so frequently, passages like this are really explained away. And somehow, a market economy and uh, the, the wolf of Wall Street somehow comes out of a passage in which he is not present. The literature in Christianity has, uh, has really illustrated the problems that Christianity has with the idea of wealth. Several of the books that, that I have uh, in my library that I have read uh, in ancient and post-Roman Europe, there's a, there's a book recently written entitled Through the Eye of a Needle. And this author goes through the history of the, of the earliest legal Christian era and recounts how men like Augustine dealt with the wealthy in the church, the wealthy in the empire. And you can see, it, it, they didn't sit well with it. They didn't know what to do with it. Another book that covers Reformation Holland. Now, Holland was once one of the leading mercantile nations in the world. And the, and the, and the Dutch possessed a great deal of wealth in their day. And, and the title of this particular book is, I think, so illustrative of what I'm talking about. It's called The Embarrassment of Riches. It was almost as though these people were embarrassed that God had so richly blessed them. But now, here's a book that comes and talks about a modern American evangelicalism. And the title of that book is called The Good of Affluence. And we've gotten over it. (laughs) It's just good to be rich. That's basically what this author has to say. Ignoring the scriptures that that, challenge us and give us attention that, that is supposed to be there, he just simply throws it out and says, you know what, it's good. It is good to be rich. Now, this isn't actually a proponent of the prosperity gospel. This author is himself a conservative evangelical. Now, I'm not saying that there is no good of affluence. And I think as we go through the passage, I hope that, um, that, that we'll come to a, a, a rational, biblical, reasonable understanding of what we experience here in Acts chapter 4 and what we are intended to experience in our own lives as Christians. But the prosperity of the West, and especially the demise of capital of communism that we older people have experienced, have witnessed, has colored and, con- and confirmed to many 
that this passage cannot possibly be advocating socialism or communism within the church. We, we've witnessed it, have we not? Living through the, the Cold War, seeing the evil empire, the Soviet Union, seeing the, the depravity, the bondage of Eastern Europe and of China and so many nations held under the thrall of a communist government. This can't possibly be what God is advocating. The turn of the 20th century, I think the, uh, the, the modern classic with regard to biblical economics was written by a German sociologist by the name of Max Weber. It was titled, Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. And that kind of captivates the Western attitude toward wealth. Protestantism, the Protestant work ethic, you've all heard about that. And the historical fact that wherever that work ethic has gone, economic prosperity has followed and has been brought primarily to bear through a system of economic capitalism. And so clearly this must be the will of God because it has worked. And as pragmatic Americans, that's often how we discern the will of God, if it works. But we need to be challenged by passages like Acts 4, verse 32. The congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. Are we reading here a divine blueprint for Christian economics? Again, that is the challenge of every passage we read in the book of Acts. Are we reading something that happened historically but is not normative for the church? Or are we reading the blueprint? God's intention for the church throughout the ages. Is the church supposed to pool the wealth of its members for common use? There is no denying in this passage, the powerful presence of the Holy Spirit. And that's something that we need to keep in mind. And with great power, the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. Now, there is no church in any age that is a true church of Jesus Christ that would not want that statement to be said about itself. But remarkably, modern commentators of this passage have concluded that what we read here was in fact a failed experiment in Christian communism. Now that statement is verbatim from one of the most popular preachers of the 20th century, W.A. Criswell who was frequently president of the Southern Baptist Convention and pastor of one of the largest churches within the SBC. And he believed and taught in his commentary that what we are reading here was an attempt by the early Christians to form a socialistic community. And the fact that we are no longer like that is proof that it failed, that it was a failed experiment. Never mind the fact that abundant grace was upon them all. Never mind the fact that they were preaching the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ with power. And never mind the fact that there was no needy among them. It was a failure. Another 
preacher, a teacher of the same era, a theologian at Fuller Seminary, claims that this practice was the reason why the Jewish Christians suffered under the famine that would come later. And remember, Paul was gathering up an offering throughout the churches of Asia Minor and of Greece for the relief of their brethren in Judea who were suffering. Now Everett Harrison says that the reason they were suffering is because they had sold all their possessions, they didn't have anything left. So not only was it a failed experiment, I'm going to put words in in Dr. Harrison's mouth, it was stupid. These are the kind of interpretations we're getting out of evangelical Christianity with regard to this passage. It was a failed experiment and it led to their suffering because they were not prepared for the famine that was to come. In other words, this was purely their own thinking, their own imagination. The apostles came up with this somehow. It wasn't of God. Again, never mind the fact that abundant grace was upon them all. But this is what we do when we allow our culture and the things that we cherish in our country to guide our interpretation of God's Word. Harrison and Criswell were both men of the Cold War. Okay? And, and many of us lived in the era of the Cold War and for much of our life never thought it would end, and for periods of our life didn't think it would end the way it has. I'm thinking of the 1970s. There was a long time where it wasn't clear that our liberties, our freedom, that we so, what's the word, vigorously associated with our economic system, did we not? Freedom and liberty were wrapped together with capitalism and market economy and and private property and the profit motive and living through that and our children don't understand what it was like to live under the threat of a nuclear war but even more pervasive than that to live under the threat of the loss of freedom of an overbearing repressive regime whether it was in Cuba 90 miles off our coast or in Moscow well within range of launching missiles over the pole and hitting us. You know, these are the, this is the atmosphere in which hermeneutics was done. Now we live in a different atmosphere where it seems that market economics has dominated and has won the battle. And even China is, is, is employing capitalistic economics in its country. And so we're in danger of feeling vindicated. That God has vindicated capitalism in the fall of the Soviet Union, and the victory of market economics. But this was not a failed experiment. There's no evidence of failure in the passage itself, nor is there any indication that the behavior that we read here in Acts chapter 4 was ever abandoned in the early church. Listen to what Paul has to write to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He says, For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but by an equality, that now at this time your abundance may supply their lack, that their abundance may also supply your lack, that there may be equality. Again, there's that word again. Doesn't that sound awfully socialistic, even communistic? 
equality. Well, we should all have the same income, which means all of the wealth of the church should be brought to the leaders of the church who will then give it out so that there might be equality. Now, I don't have the time to go through 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, which is the broader context, but merely have the time to say that that is not what Paul was teaching. Nonetheless, he also advocates a behavior among the churches of Jesus Christ that mimics the behavior of the earliest church here in Jerusalem, which is to say that whatever it is that was going on here was not abandoned. It was not a failure. There is something here for us to learn, something for us to do. So we admit that this was not a failed experiment, but that does not necessarily mean that it was a command of the Lord. And I want to point out, kind of in, in anticipation of where we're going, there is no evidence in this passage that it was a command of the apostles either. That's important. There is no evidence within the passage that the apostles ever consciously commanded that this phenomenon happened. The selling of goods and the bringing together of the wealth. Craig Blomberg wrote another excellent book on this topic. It's entitled, Neither Poverty Nor Riches. And in it he says, It is certainly true that everything the Bible says happened is not necessarily a timeless, positive example to be emulated. But as part of inspired scripture, a narrative such as this is as much a database for theology as any other genre. Which means, to put it simply, we can't ignore this passage. We can't simply pass it off as being cultural. We can't say that it was a failed experiment. We have to read it. We have to allow ourselves to be challenged by it. And we have to apply it by the wisdom and the power and the courage granted by the Holy Spirit into a deeply capitalistic age in which we live. Let's look at the passage itself. As I said earlier, there was no coercion. There was no apostolic edict. As we read, the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Now that is frequently the prayer and the benediction that we read throughout the New Testament for the congregations of Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul writes to the Philippians that it is this for which we strive, with unity of mind. He says to the Ephesians that there is only one body, one Lord, one hope, one baptism. And then he goes on to talk about how unified the body of Christ is supposed to be. And it is from this attitude of oneness, one heart and one soul, not one of them claimed that anything he possessed was his own. Now that's another interesting way of putting it. Who possessed the things that they did not consider their own? They did. There is no abrogation of the right of private property here. What we have here is private property including that of the wealthy, that they themselves did not consider to be their own. Though no one else had the right to take it, it was theirs. 
Nonetheless, their attitude toward it was it was not theirs. And we assume, especially those who read socialism out of this, they, they, we assume that the attitude was that their possessions belonged to the church. No. They believed their possessions belonged to the Lord and belonged to Him to direct their distribution. We also assume that when they sold their possessions, they rendered themselves destitute. But that is not what they did. These were men of means who often had multiple properties. And they sold those and brought the proceeds so that those who did not have could have their needs met by the church. Now we need to remember that for a Jew to become a Christian meant that they would be ex-synagogued. They would be excommunicated, which in that culture, as it is in some cultures in our world today, meant that they could no longer participate not only in the, the Sabbath meeting, they could not participate in the economy of their community. Okay, we think of it as, oh, you can't go to church there anymore. No, you can't go to church there anymore, and you can't buy in that store, and you can't go to that shop, and this artisan will not do anything for you, and you can't buy real estate. You are out, which brought poverty and destitution upon the early believers. And no help from the government, no Department of Social Services, no aid to families with dependent children, none of that. And so out of the abundance of their heart, put there by the Holy Spirit, the believers took care of one another. Now, the right of private property is actually something that is staunchly defended in Scripture and by the law. And we read, and I didn't read this passage as part of this section, but as we go into chapter 5, we have that infamous story of Ananias and Sapphira. And so if any of us are thinking that, that the, the apostles somehow claimed ownership of the possessions of the believers, listen to what Peter had to say to Ananias. He said, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? This was the apostolic attitude, which is the biblical attitude that is taught throughout the law of the Old Testament and that is, once it's yours, it's yours. And even when you sell it, the disposition of the proceeds is at your disposal. Why have you lied then to the Holy Spirit? That was Ananias' sin. Private property is ingrained and entrenched in the biblical economic ethic. We have the, 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 the prohibition of moving the boundary stones of anybody's possession. We have the sabbatical year and the year of Jubilee when slaves, Hebrew slaves and those who were indentured because of their economic distress were set free. They were often set free with money and their ancestral properties returned to them because the properties that they owned signified their communion with the community of God's people. And they could not be dispossessed of that forever. So private property is not at issue here. 
What is at issue here is the right disposition of one in his possession and his selling of his property. What we see here is actually a living out of the holiness code that we read in the book of Leviticus. That's where we read that the farmer was not permitted to harvest into the corners of his land. Now, now I, I grew up on a farm, but it wasn't a working farm, although we, we rented out the land to be farmed. And then my, my wife's family were dairy farmers, and it was a working farm. And I remember watching in, and even driving the, the, the tractors and all of the, the equipment, and, and you can't do a 90-degree angle with one of those things. You can only do an arc. You know, and then I read this passage in Leviticus, I think it's Leviticus 19, where it says, you shall not harvest. Now, they didn't have tractors, but I'm thinking, you know what we used to do? We used to go around the edge and then back up to get the corner. Well, that's okay, because there were no poor people coming behind us. But in Israel, you didn't back up and catch the corner, because that corner belonged to the poor. When you went through, now my father had a grape orchard, a grape vineyard, and I would harvest the grapes because he would make wine every year. And you know, so you read the passage, you don't beat your olive trees, you don't glean your grapes twice. You know, that's the holiness code in economic ethics. Because what is left over, what you missed, and you always miss something, what you miss belongs to the poor. It belongs to Ruth and Naomi. Because frankly, the only man that we witness in the Bible who actually put all this into practice was Boaz. One of the most interesting economic characters that we have in Scripture. A man who obeyed the holiness code and forbade his workers from harassing the poor who were coming behind them to pick up whatever they dropped. And I can just picture Boaz saying, you know, kind of let your basket over a little bit. That's what he did with Ruth. You know, let, let a little bit more fall out of your basket. Miss a few more and let her pick them up. There, there's an attitude of commitment to the community that overflows into economic practice without any command from above, without any economic theory from Adam Smith or from Karl Marx, but rather from the Holy Spirit saying that we are all of one heart and soul, and it is truly us against the world. And if we don't take care of our own, then, then who will? There was also in the Old Covenant the promise of community prosperity. Now this doesn't mean the prosperity gospel. This doesn't mean that it was God's will that every individual person within his community would be filthy rich. But it did mean that there was a predisposition on God's part to bless his people with physical, material prosperity. He promised he would, if they would obey. And part of that obedience was to hold very loosely the prosperity that God gave to them. One author quotes, The church was committed to taking the principle of Deuteronomy 15, verse 4, very seriously, there should be no poor among you. This wasn't something new that the apostles said, hey, we're a church now. 
we got to figure out what to do with all of our possessions. Well, let's sell them and, and give all the money away. Now, that's not what was going on here. These were the children of Abraham, redeemed through the Messiah of Israel, now putting into practice within their community, the new Israel, the principles that God had set forth for them for 1,500 years. There should be no poor among you. What kind of a testimony would that be to the world? If the church could say, I don't know what y'all are doing at the Fed, and I don't really understand fiscal policy or your tax plan, because you don't either, but there are no poor among us. There are no poor among us. No, we're not all rich, but none of us are destitute either, because we are of one heart and soul, and not one of us considers the thing that is our own, which God has placed in our possession, to be our own. That's, that's a tough concept. But I want to say, it didn't start with the church in the days and weeks and months after Pentecost. I want to go back to Deuteronomy 15 and explain, hopefully, what was going on. What was going on, because this was the community of faith. These were God's people. And if we claim to be that community through grace, or by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then the passage that I'm going to read from Deuteronomy 15 belongs to us. But first I want to ask this question. Why is there such a negative reaction to the possibility that the Bible teaches socialism? Why do we have that initial tightening of our gut muscles as my faculty advisor did when I gave him a chapter that did not glowingly praise capitalism but actually indicated that there might be some problems with it. And his reaction was, whoa, you know, get out the garlic. I got a communist on my hands. He seriously did not know what to do. Why do we have that kind of response? If I stood up here and I harangued you from the Bible saying you must sell all your goods, like the rich young ruler, sell all that you have, give it to the church, I venture your reaction would be rather negative, at least quite troubled. Why is that? And I think the answer is because what we have in the modern church is a disintegrated faith. And what I mean by that is that we, in our minds, believe that there are things that belong to the Lord and things that we do in the world. We go to church on Sundays, we go to work on Monday. We do one thing as we, as we talk about the finances of the church, but we do something else when we talk about the finances of our business. We are disintegrated. Where the Spirit of God is abundantly blessing, there is integration. And the faith of the believer permeates every aspect of their life, including their political and their economic. There is no disintegration, there is integration. And that's what we see here in Acts chapter 4. That's what we see whenever we witness in the history of the church, God pouring out His Spirit in revival, we see integrated Christianity. We don't have that right now. It is something for which we should pray not only in our own lives, but in the church, that our faith might be integrated 
that we would know ourselves to be a chosen and blessed people. We are a peculiar nations, nation. We are priests to our God. We are blood-bought. We are redeemed. We do no longer possess ourselves, but the Lord is our master. We are no longer citizens of this earth, but rather our citizenship is from heaven. All of these things are said about us. And so when we look to one another, we should consider ourselves to be in the same community as the Israelites. Listen to this passage in Deuteronomy 15. For the Lord your God, starting in verse 6, the Lord your God shall bless you as he has promised you. And you will lend to many nations, but you will not borrow. And you will rule over many nations, but they will not rule over you. If there is a poor man with you, one of your brothers in any of your towns in the land in which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart nor close your hand from your brother. But you shall freely open your hand to him and shall generously lend him sufficient for his need in whatever he lacks. Beware, lest there is a base thought in your heart, saying, Oh, the seventh year, the year of remission is near, and your eye is hostile toward your poor brother, and you give him nothing. Then he may cry to the Lord against you, and it will be a sin to you. You shall generously give to him, and your heart shall not be grieved when you give to him, because for this is the thing the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all your undertakings. The poor will never cease to be in the land. Therefore I command you, saying, you shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy and poor in your land. The poor will always be with you. Did you know Jesus was quoting Deuteronomy when he said that? He was quoting Deuteronomy 15.11. The poor you will have with you always. Therefore, you shall not harden your heart. You shall not hold back your hand when your brother has need. We have, in our day, an example of this behavior that sadly is not from the church. And in my own studies on this topic, this particular economic practice stood out so profoundly that many university economics departments have come together and given it a name. It's called enclave economics. And I think we've all witnessed it at some point or another, but it is mostly found in immigrant communities. When they move into a foreign land or a foreign culture, and not every immigrant community does this, but I know that in my grandfather's time, the Italian community did. I know that the Vietnamese community does. I know that the Koreans, it's mostly actually Eastern Asian, but some European. And what they do is that those who come first work very, very hard to get established. And then those who come later are set up by those who came first with the understanding that then when they are successful, they will sponsor someone else. So that there is no poverty. And even as the culture around them has economic ups and downs, these enclave economies have remained steadily prosperous. You've heard of Amana appliances? Well, Amana was a is a community of European German brethren out in Iowa, I believe, or Indiana. Seven communities. One of their members 
kind of discovered refrigeration. And so they all started making refrigerators. Now these aren't cloisters, these aren't monasteries. Because all of these enclave economies trade with the outside culture. That's how we know they're there. Okay? They're often very um, specialized and almost stereotyped. You know, oh, okay, they're, they're into restaurants, or they're into dry cleaners, or, you know, we see them, but this is what they do because of their own. They are aliens and sojourners in a strange land. Doesn't that sound familiar? And so they, they, don't, they don't adopt poverty or destitution. Now, actually, the Amana communities attempted to be socialistic, and it failed. And they had a meeting where the seven communities came together and they rewrote their charter. This was back in the mid-1800s. And they adopted the principles of market economics without divesting themselves of the communal aspects of their economy. This incredible example of people taking care of one another within a community. If there was a poor man among them, a poor man coming to this country with almost nothing in his pocket and sometimes nothing at all, then you will not harden your heart, but rather you will, you will set him up. You'll bring him into your factory. You will apprentice him in a trade. You will set him up with his own operation. And then he, from his profits, will do the same. And so there is this, this pooling of resources without this universal destitution of poverty. And the result, even in the world, is economic prosperity and powerful community. I think this is the will of God for the church. James, I think, thinks the same. He says, if, if a brother or a sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and you say, go, be clothed, be fed, be warm, but give him nothing, when it is in your power to do so, where is your faith? Wouldn't it be amazing? Wouldn't it be, and, and maybe this is pure conjecture, but I, I think I'm standing on the principles of God's law to his people. Wouldn't it be a powerful testimony to the world if the church were recession-proof? If it could be said, while there are always poor in the land, there are no poor among us. Let us pray. Father, we are indeed challenged personally and corporately by these words in Deuteronomy 15 and Acts chapter 4. And Father, I admit that it does not appear that such an economy could be brought about in our day and age. Nonetheless, Father, I do pray that we would be of one heart and soul as believers. And rather than having a form of economic practice put upon us by a church leadership, rather from our hearts, we would view possession of the property that you have given us in the way you would have us view it. That you are the one who gives the power to make wealth, and with that you give responsibility for the poor in our midst. And so, Father, we pray that we might be open-hearted and open-handed with wisdom as your Spirit guides us. 
that we would not close our hearts nor be embittered to our brethren, but rather we would even learn from the unbelievers who often take care of their own better than the church does. Give us grace, Father, and wisdom and courage. We ask for your glory, for our good, and for the exaltation of the name of Jesus Christ. For we ask it in his name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction this morning from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Very appropriate, I believe, to this topic. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen.